Good evening, everyone. Uh, my name is David Snoke, and uh, I am an uh, inactive elder. If you don't know what that is, it doesn't matter uh, in the uh, church here. Uh, but uh, many of you know my daughter, Hannah. Uh, she was here speaking uh, a couple, uh, well, about a month ago, I guess. And she works for a group that specifically doesn't call itself a mission agency, uh, because they don't view what they're doing as missions in the, in the traditional uh, sense. And the reason for that is because the church in China has grown so much uh, that in many ways one could call it a mature church, uh, and in some ways a sending church. They're evangelizing their own country, and they're even sending Chinese missionaries out to other parts of the world uh, outside of China. Uh, and so the relationship uh, that her agency has <clears throat> with the Chinese church uh, is now not one of sort of us sending uh, teachers to them, but in a lot of ways more like collaboration of saying, well, uh, how can we get people from the global church talking to each other? And there's health in not being isolated. <clears throat> there's health in theologians from China talking to theologians from North America and so on, and pastors saying, how do you do pastoring and so on. And one of the things that she said that we have to learn from the Chinese church uh, as we, you know, on the one hand, you could say, well, we have all these libraries in the West with just filled with tomes of the, you know, the records of the Roman Empire and the Middle Ages and the church throughout all that history. Uh, nevertheless, there's something that we uh, really need to rediscover, one could say, that we could learn from the Chinese church, which she called a, a theology of suffering uh, or a theology of persecution uh, that essentially in the West, in America, we... We don't even know what that is. We have no such thing. Uh, and it's very much a deep part of the theology of the Chinese church today, uh, taught throughout a lot of the churches, is how to think about persecution and suffering for the name of Christ. And of course, it's because it's an active, applied thing in their daily life. But I would um, argue uh, tonight that it's something that we should embrace and that we should learn, and actually I think uh, could have deep impact uh, on how we think about uh, our own Christian lives. Uh, so the passage we have before us is 1 Peter chapter 4, and in a sense, you could say, this just sort of came up in the order of the, uh, of the preaching schedule, but this is, uh, you can almost say this whole passage is just a perfect theology of persecution uh, that Peter lays out for us. Uh, so I'm going to read this, and then as our uh, pattern is, at the end I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and we have a response, thanks be to God. So this is printed in your bulletin on page 6. Uh, from 1 Peter uh, chapter 4, starting in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the, household, at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. So, my first point uh, is essentially just the same as Peter's first point here, which is do not 
be surprised. Uh, if you look uh, all through scripture, there are so many passages, and some of them we've already read earlier in the service, that talk about persecution being normal for the Christian life. Uh, and um, if you look in the additional scriptures, I put a bunch of them there. Uh, some of them really stand out. It's pretty shocking. So uh, if you look at the call to confession we looked at there, he doesn't just say, blessed are you when people hate you and exclude you and revile you for the name of Christ. He flips it and he also says, woe to you when everybody speaks well of you. Uh, and then also in your additional scriptures, 2 Timothy chapter 3, uh, verse 12 says, indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Uh, and so it's not... Only that it could happen, but essentially it's saying it's going to happen. It's the norm. Uh, now, uh, we live in a society in which you could say we don't have the kind of persecution they were dealing with in the first century where people were uh, killing them, chopping off their heads and so on. Uh, some of this is going on. Uh, I just read an article this week that uh, some agencies are classifying what's going on in Africa as actual genocide. Uh, because of the number of Christians who are being killed in Africa. Uh, in China, they're not mostly killing Christians, uh, but they're uh, persecuting them very heavily. Uh, there was a church that they dynamited, not with the people in it, but they blew up their church and arrested all the people, threw them in jail. Um, we don't deal with that uh, in the United States uh, in any uh, significant way. And so in one sense, you might say, well, anything that we might call persecution really should just be called hurt feelings, right? That we're not really dealing with anything of that order uh, that other people are talking about. But in another sense, you could say the, the Western church uh, in, the, in Europe and the United States uh, is probably the least able to deal with even the small amount of persecution that we actually get. Uh, and so what we're seeing in our day is actually something that's not entirely new, but churches, one after the other, just caving on significant doctrines and saying, uh, we, we just can't stand up for this teaching anymore. Even though it's been taught for 2,000 years, we're just going to punt on that because uh, people won't like us uh, if we teach that. And so I just want to go back a little bit in history. Uh, this isn't going to be a super long history lesson, but I just want to give you a little bit of context for sort of where we stand in history. And go back to the 1800s when uh, it was sort of the end of a period of history where Christianity became the absolute consensus in European culture among all classes of people. Uh, it wasn't just one class of people. It was really just a, a societal consensus. Uh, and then in the 1800s, that consensus broke down. And you had people saying in the name of science, uh, you can't possibly believe uh, in a virgin birth. You can't possibly believe that Jesus walked on water. You can't possibly believe that he rose from the dead. That's like superstitious nonsense. Nobody would ever believe such a thing as that. <clears throat> and so the church uh, was faced with a crisis in that day uh, and moved into a, a state in which they said, well, in order to keep people in the church, uh, if we don't want them all to just reject Christianity, we're going to have to jettison some of these uh, doctrines that seem ridiculous to modern people. And so that began a movement, which sometimes is called the liberal theology movement, of sort of getting rid of those elements that seem offensive or strange to, uh, to modern ears. In response to that, there was what was called the fundamentalist movement. And the fundamentalist movement, when it started, was a broad-based movement uh, in North America, Europe, all around the world, of people who said, no, there are certain fundamental teachings that we just insist on that you have to believe uh, and that Christians of all different types have always taught and we all agree on. Things such as the second coming of Christ, the resurrection of Christ from the dead, 
uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, and so there was a split in the church at that point uh, between at what would have at that time been called the, the liberal uh, theology and the fundamentalist theology. Well, the direction of fundamentalism went in kind of a bad direction. Uh, I think most people would say, historically, uh, that there are many good things uh, happened from that, but um, it became, you could say, isolated and inward. There was sort of an anti-attitude uh, to say, well, everything that the culture is doing, we're just against that. If they like it, we're against it. Uh, if they're for it, uh, we're against it. If they're against it, we're for it. Uh, and just almost a complete uh, opposition to everything in the culture. And so it became perceived as isolated. In response to that, to keep in track here, in case we've got like four different movements here, uh, the last one, which I would say we're in, is the evangelical movement. And so many of you have heard that name evangelical. It gets used all the time. Our church would label itself as an evangelical church. Uh, pretty much can be associated with starting late 50s and the 60s, really picking up speed in the 70s, of people who shared most of the beliefs of the fundamentalists, of saying, we really believe that Jesus really rose from the dead. We really believe he is coming back to judge the nations. We really believe in all these fundamental doctrines. But we don't believe that you're not a Christian if you smoke or if you drink or if you dance or you know, some of these other things that fundamentalists had picked up. Uh, and so they said, we want to uh, really uh, you know, be winsome and welcoming to the world rather than sort of having a, an attitude of isolation and keeping them out. And so the evangelical movement, in a way, and I'm really sort of summarizing things in a, in a very, uh, very generalized way, you could say the attitude for the last 50 years has been uh, what we want to do uh, to evangelize the world is uh, become so likable that everybody is just going to say, how can we be like you? Because you guys are just so good. I want to be like you. Uh, and that is how we hope that evangelism will go. Uh, that, uh, you know, that I'll be just living my life and I'll be just doing it so well that people will just say, that's remarkable. How how nice you are and how good you're doing life. Please tell me how I can be like you. Uh, and um, there, that has been what we sort of have visualized that we want to happen and that we think can happen. And I would say actually for a good fraction of the last 50 years, it actually worked. Uh, that there was a sense in which lots of people said they have something I don't have. That church seems to have life. You know, I don't feel like I have life in my church. That church seems to be, there's something about those people. I want to know them. Uh, but in retrospect, I would say it worked because of something that was deep in our culture, which was a consensus of basic Christian beliefs and values that even though you could say the larger culture had sort of intellectually rejected things like the virgin birth and the resurrection of Jesus uh, as actual facts, there still was this consensus about, well, the Ten Commandments are pretty much right and wrong, and um, there's certainly a, a certain way that you should live life that makes you a good person, and there was pretty much a societal consensus about what that looked like. And so the kind of persecution that I remember from back in the 70s, I remember the 70s, uh, uh, is uh, the kind of persecution you would get was, oh, there are goody two-shoes. Is that a phrase even anybody uses anymore? Um, but, you know, they're, they're, they're just so holier than thou. They're always doing the right thing. Why don't they loosen up uh, and do something bad every now and then? But sort of the perspective was, they're too good. They're always doing good all the time, and I don't like that. I want them to do a little bad. That's not where we are right now as a culture. We're at a culture now uh, where society is saying, no, they're not better than us, they're worse. Christians are to be despised. 
Christians are doing things that are, in some cases, evil or wrong. Uh, and we don't have the societal consensus to say, oh, I, what Christians are doing is so much better, I want to be like them. But many, many people in our culture are saying, Christians are in the wrong and we need to stamp them out uh, because they're, you know, they're doing evil. And I think that, get, that brings us back now to persecution and how to think about persecution. Um, I think that maybe many of us who've grown up in the West never really seriously been persecuted. When we think of someone being persecuted like in Africa or China or in the Roman Empire and so on, maybe we sort of think about it this way as sort of a, a very well-designated bad guy who is you know, like a movie stereotype of a bad guy and everybody knows it's a bad guy and when that bad guy persecutes you, then everybody else says, how heroic that you're standing up to that bad guy. Okay, That's not how persecutions go. Right? Cultures persecute people that they don't like. They don't persecute people that they like. And so uh, in the Roman Empire, it wasn't that people were saying, oh, those Christians are so nice, and it's so bad that those few bad guys are attacking them. It's, no, they hated Christians. They disliked them. Uh, and again, you could look at later periods of time in China, um, people persecute people they don't like. That's sort of obvious, right? They don't persecute people that they like and think of as heroic, right? They persecute people they dislike. And so fundamentally, I think what's hard for us in our culture to grasp is actually not so much facing physical persecution, but actually facing people not liking us, people not respecting us, people saying, you know, if you're a Christian, uh, that's, that's a, a lower state than the average person in society. That is a nasty thing to be. Uh, and that's one of the main things that Peter is talking about here. And he's saying, don't be surprised at that. And so you notice that in all of the verses, these various verses, it's not just saying people are going to cart you off to jail, but to say they're going to revile you. They're going to insult you, it says in verse 14 in our passage. Uh, in the Luke chapter 6 passage, it says... Um, you know, that they will uh, laugh, uh, they will uh, make fun of you uh, and, um, and they will say evil about you, uh, that they will accuse you of being bad. Uh, and that is essentially, a, in, in a lot of ways, I would say harder to deal with. It's harder to deal with being mocked, for at least many of us, than actual physical pain. Uh, suppose you're in physical pain uh, in the marathon that was run today and you're running across the, uh, the finish line, uh, and uh, you are in great physical pain, but everyone is cheering and applauding. You don't, you're, not, you're not suffering, right? But if you are not feeling physical pain, but you are um, standing up in front of a class having to give uh, an answer to a question, and you can't remember a thing, and people start to laugh and snicker, uh, many people would suffer far more uh, mentally than they would if they were in physical pain, but everybody was applauding them, right? So we, we just deeply don't like, we want people to like us. It's natural uh, for people to like us. Um, and so essentially my first point is just, is just that we need to understand it is the norm for Christianity everywhere to be persecuted or disliked one way or another, and for us to be healthy as a church, to be healthy in the West, uh, we need to accept that many people are not going to like us, that many people are going to say that is a silly belief, that is a ridiculous belief. Uh, maybe even people go further to say that is an oppressive belief. Uh, it's associated with historical oppression. How can you believe uh, such a thing? 
Uh, and yet we need to uh, say, that's the deal. The deal is that my allegiance is with Jesus primarily, not what the world is teaching today in my generation, in my culture, and I have to be able uh, to live with that. And so the very, uh, my first point then is just what Peter says here. Don't be surprised as though something strange were happening. Uh, and I would say, for our context, that means if you're saying something about Christianity and somebody just scoffs and laughs uh, and mocks you, uh, that hurts, but don't be surprised. Don't be surprised when that happens. And, we're, and it's going to happen more and more uh, in the future. And we need to say sort of a gut check. Am I going to bury my faith so deep that nobody could possibly ever mock me because nobody will ever know? Uh, or uh, am I going to just live my life and be who I am and say, hey, I had a great time in church on Sunday and let the chips fall where they may? Uh, and if that means people mock me, so be it. Uh, that's the issue that we have to deal with in our culture today. And so, in a sense, looking at worst case scenario and saying, suppose they don't just mock me, but they actually throw me in jail. Am I willing to go there? Because that's where Christians throughout history and in more than half of the church alive today are dealing with uh, at a very basic level. And so we have to deal with that in our hearts as well. Uh, so uh, I have three other points here uh, that'll go a little bit quicker. Uh, the second point is uh, something that Peter brings up here. <clears throat> in enduring persecution for our witness for Christ, we have a spiritual share in his sufferings. It's kind of a funny uh, theological thing. It actually comes up also in several places in Scripture. Uh, so if you see this here uh, in verse 13, he says, Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Uh, and then in verse 14, he says, the spirit of glory uh, and of God rests on you. And so there is a theology throughout scripture that says when we are persecuted for Christ, in a very real and spiritual way, we are walking in Christ's shoes. We are sort of being like Christ. Now, in a way, you could say that's always true in all of life, that if you're a Christian, you've asked Jesus to live in you through the Holy Spirit, uh, and so he is always with you, and all that we do is in some sense trying to walk after him to live as he lived. <clears throat> but nevertheless, there's also a way in which the writers of scripture say that when you're persecuted, <clears throat> in some sense, you are drawing closer to Christ. You're being more Christ-like. You're really following in his footsteps as he walked uh, to the cross. Now, I want to balance this by saying because of this teaching, which is in scripture, it sometimes has gotten out of balance in the historical church where people have actually sought out martyrdom. Uh, you know, so probably if you read the stories of the martyrs, people almost wanting to be a martyr, and we talk about even in our culture of a martyr complex. Uh, and Peter goes out of his way to say, um, you know, let it be for the sake of the will of God that you suffer, not something you bring on yourself because you actually deserve it. Uh, so of course, uh, in verse 15, he says, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer. You know, if you're a criminal and you're, you're put in jail, that's not suffering for the name of Christ. You know, that is something you, you actually deserve. Uh, but I also like he adds, or as a meddler. Uh, so, uh, you know, a meddler is a phrase we don't use that much. Um, a busybody, right? Somebody who is sticking their nose in where it doesn't belong. And so that probably wouldn't be classified as a crime, but it's something that could get a lot of people really irritated and angry at you as a Christian 
uh, and it doesn't need to be. And so we don't have to say, well, I have to fix everybody's life and make them all Christian, you know, and if they persecute me, then, uh, you see, you know, it's just uh, the Lord is bringing on the persecution of Christ on me. Maybe I've actually just really irritated everybody by being a meddler. Uh, and then I shouldn't be rejoicing. I should be saying, no, I brought it on myself. Uh, but what Peter does say is not all suffering is in that category. So sometimes you can be unjustly, uh, uh, some, sorry, sometimes you can be justly put in jail <clears throat> because you've done crimes. Sometimes you can be maybe unjustly persecuted, but sort of bring it on yourself by meddling, by just being really irritating. Uh, but there is a third category of when you actually were doing it the right way, when you actually were speaking the truth in love, and the world just couldn't tolerate hearing that, and they, and they mock you, uh, and in some countries uh, possibly even go further than that. Uh, so uh, we shouldn't be afraid of martyrdom so much that we're thinking, well, um, whatever, I have to be the opposite of a martyr complex. You know, I have to be so beloved by the people around me that nothing possibly would bring them to want to persecute me. Uh, because if I do that, I'm letting them define the agenda. So we don't want to seek out martyrdom, but on the other hand, we shouldn't be surprised at it. Uh, and when it happens, the scripture does teach uh, that there is a, uh, a close relationship that Jesus has with those people. And we heard from the Revelation passage, which was read earlier in the service, that they're sort of pictured as in the throne room of God, uh, sending up their prayers, and, which is like incense before God, and God uh, is consoling them. Uh, and so uh, those who do suffer justly, uh, not because of bringing it on themselves, but because of the testimony of Christ, uh, there is a very real spiritual presence that Christ uh, brings to them. <clears throat> and again, in that lesser sense in which we are not really persecuted to that degree, nevertheless, I would say, if you, if you are willing to say something that is a little bit, you know, pushing the boundary and saying, have you ever thought about coming to church with me, as Matt was talking about this morning, uh, and uh, that makes you feel a little uncomfortable, um, Draw on the Holy Spirit, because you are, in some sense, even if you are mocked by that person, uh, that is, should draw you nearer to Christ, uh, even at that point. All right, my third point. Uh, persecution can help to purify the church. There's some odd language uh, later in this passage <clears throat> where Peter says, it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So he's actually quoting the Old Testament here, and there's actually a theme <clears throat> through the Old Testament that God reserves the right to bring judgment in this world, not just at the end of time, and that he often uh, will judge his own people uh, uh, in bringing temporal judgments into their lives, uh, and sometimes uh, even more so, than the people who are outside of the kingdom, people who don't believe in him. And uh, so there's that uh, sort of picture of God uh, judging his church. Now you can ask, why does he do that? Uh, because in the case of <clears throat> people who hate God, you could say, well, this is just sort of a warning shot to say, uh, you know, see what God can do. Repent now while you have a chance. Uh, for those who love God, though, you can say, well, what is the purpose of, of that judgment? Uh, well, there's a whole a lot of uh, things that could be developed about uh, suffering and how that can cause us to grow in Christ. Uh, but one thing I just want to point out in the context of persecution 
is that persecution separates sort of the fake believers from the real believers to some degree. Uh, if we think about um, you know, hypocritical Christianity or hypocritical religion of any type, people only pretend to be something that's attractive. They don't pretend to be something that everybody hates. Right? So, you know, if Christianity is respected in a culture, then lots of people are going to pretend to be Christians because it's respected and it makes them feel respectable and good. If Christianity is being persecuted and, and, and being downgraded, then very few people are going to fake being something that's going to get persecuted. Uh, and so, to a large degree, it, it purifies the church and it says, okay, who is really willing to stand up here uh, and stand for me and who is not? Uh, and many of the people who in an easy situation might hang on uh, and be um, sort of fake believers, that's not going to happen. And I think we're seeing that in our culture. Um, there was a news story maybe a couple months ago saying that uh, for the first time ever, the number of people who say they have no religion outnumbers the number of people who say they're Christians uh, in the United States. Uh, it's been that way in Europe for a long time. Uh, but um, when you sort of look at the numbers, it actually turns out that church attendance has been relatively constant for decades, uh, going back uh, many, many decades. And uh, what's happening in our culture is that people who 50 years ago would not have actually attended church, not actually believed any of it, uh, would have still kept a membership in a church. And if you asked them, they said, oh, I'm Presbyterian, or oh, I'm Baptist, or I'm Catholic, or whatever. That just would have been sort of part of their identity, uh, like a driver's license or something. Uh, but they wouldn't have actually believed any of it or had an impact in their lives. And so what's happening now is that segment of people, which is about at least 30, maybe half, uh, 50% of the population, now sees no attraction to keep that label of Christian if they don't actually believe it. Uh, and so we're seeing a lot of people in our day dropping their church membership uh, who in a prior generation uh, would have been unbelievers then too, but they would have kept their membership just because it seemed like the social kind of norm uh, thing to do. Uh, so we are uh, going into a culture in which uh, now in some sense it's becoming more common that the people you see in church are either inquirers or actually believe it, but very few people just sort of nominally there because it's just a thing to do. And that can actually be a good thing for the church. I can tell you right now, in China, uh, there are probably very few people, uh, uh, or in Northern Africa, who are like, hey, I think I'm going to pretend to be a Christian uh, and hang out with you guys, you know, so I can get thrown in jail with you. Uh, that's probably not going to happen. And so it does, in some sense, uh, help the health of the church. Uh, although, you know, sometimes churches actually get killed off, so it isn't like we should just say, oh, bring more persecution. Uh, there are places where the church has literally been genocided and there are none left. Uh, but they're in heaven. All right, and that brings me to my final point. Uh, present day suffering is of little consequence compared to eternity. This is essentially the argument that Peter makes here. Uh, so he says in verse 13, uh, Insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, uh, rejoice uh, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And then down in verse 19, he says, Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. The bottom line is, if there is no heaven and there is no final judgment and God doesn't win in the end, it makes no sense to throw everything away to be persecuted for a lost cause, at least in 
uh, your particular culture. Um, this courage that we see in the, in the people who are willing to be persecuted uh, is anchored in the fact that they believe it's really true that God will uh, judge the nations, and that God will remember their unjust sufferings and he will uh, bring them into his kingdom. Uh, and that was, um, uh, John mentioned uh, the uh, quote at the beginning. And I like what John said to me before the service. <clears throat> He's saying, well, there's a lot to think about in this passage. But one of the things is that this is not the way we think. <laughs> uh, that's probably the first thing that just jumps out at you. This is not the way we think uh, when, we, when we look at this kind of passage. Uh, and I think what particularly strikes me is what might be called his, his non-worldliness, his otherworldliness, that he's saying, uh, I'll just read that last uh, uh, phrase, the goal of my disobedience, he's talking about civil disobedience uh, to the government when they're telling him not to preach the gospel, is not to change the world, but to testify about another world. Now, that doesn't mean that there's no place for trying to make this world a better place. But fundamentally, uh, the strength of someone like him to be willing to go to prison for his faith uh, comes from having that anchor belief that this world isn't all there is uh, and that there is another world uh, and that God stands as judge uh, over everything <clears throat> and that the sufferings of this world are light in comparison to the rewards and the, and the joy that we will have in heaven. Uh, now, I could preach a whole sermon on heaven and you know, is it wrong to be heavenly minded? Does that mean you're no worldly good? And so on. Uh, but that's not the way the scripture teaches. The scripture says our anchor, the courage that we have, is found the more that we really believe that it's true uh, that if I am with Christ, then I will be in heaven with him. And so whatever they do to me here doesn't matter in the long run. Uh, in a few short decades, uh, we'll all be dead one way or the other. Uh, and do I want to be in heaven standing with Jesus? Uh, and so it really presses us, and I think that's what persecution, as I said, purifies the church. It presses people to say, do I think this is really true, or is it just a nice story that I'm going along with? Because if you just say, I love music, and I love singing, and I love the stories, that won't stand up under persecution. It won't even stand up under mild persecution. It won't even stand up under mocking. Uh, and a lot of people, uh, including some for our church, have left the faith because they went out and they were mocked. And they said, you can't possibly believe that. That is ridiculous. Uh, and, and people walk away from the faith in every generation, not uniquely in our generation, uh, because of persecution uh, and because of mocking. And so persecution is a gut check to say, do I really believe this or am I just playing around? Uh, and it really does um, draw out, you could say, what really our core beliefs uh, really are. Um, so um, let me just you know, finish with a little more of the details of this pastor in China. I don't want to um, uh, shock anybody uh, too much. <laughs> uh, but we said persecution, it's not just a little thing. Okay? Hannah was telling me that in this church, this pastor was rounded up, his wife was rounded up, his wife was taken to a different prison and sexually abused there. Okay? How does that pastor feel about that? Um, and that was common for everybody in that church that was rounded up. Okay? This is not, not just nice you know, idealist uh, persecution. This is serious persecution. Uh, and many of the Christians in that church couldn't take it, and they, and they said what the government wanted them to say, uh, and, they, and they were released. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, I, I would say the church is, is merciful to those people. Uh, and yet, you have to say, we are nowhere near that. But 
Uh, where's your faith? Could you be in that position? Uh, I mean, could, would you be willing to be? And in some sense you say, if I am, then what in the world does it matter to me if somebody mocks me on the internet? Uh, if I'm willing to stand up for Christ, even to that degree, uh, then what does it matter uh, if somebody gives me a funny look uh, or, or mocks me or something like that? Uh, we need to, uh, in a sense, really check our faith uh, and, uh, and the great blessing is that Jesus is with us uh, when we walk with him. Let's pray.